Beyond Barbarossa, Episode 17, a conversation with Ray Harris of the History of World War II podcast. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, podcasting to you today from the Redbeard Studio, located on Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, also known as Ottawa. Thanks for coming. Today, we have a special episode. I'll be joined by a fellow podcaster, one of my favorites, and an inspiration for me. Ray Harris of the History of World War II podcast. It's available on all the major podcasting platforms, and I highly recommend adding it to your regular podcast feed. Ray and I will discuss the Eastern Front of World War II, what else, and some lessons we can still use today. Ray, thanks for joining. Uh, Please, uh, why don't you tell the listeners about your podcast? You can do a lot better job than I can. Yes, my, my uh, podcast is the example of uh, leaping before you look. Uh, I started this in the summer of 2010. I had no ambitions. Obviously, it's the History of World War II podcast. Um, I had no ambitions. I just wanted to tell the story of World War II. I wanted to do for World War II what Mike Duncan had done for the History of Rome or uh, Cameron Riley and J. David Markham had done for Napoleon. Those were the first two podcasts I listened to. Those and, are... Uh, uh... High yeah. bars to meet. Though, yeah, I see. Again, I did not know that Mike Duncan is basically and still to this day the gold standard. So if you're going to do it, you might as well aim up here. But this is um, one of those instances where ignorance is bliss. So I started it uh, with no expectations. I had no what I, uh, idea what I was doing as far as technology. I still don't. I'm quite proud of that statement. But um <laughs> Now, basically, I fell in love with uh, World War II history, age 10 or 12. Uh, the, the German language I find absolutely beautiful. No, I don't speak it, but I've always been fascinated. I watched, probably like you, Hogan's Heroes when I was a little <laughs> yes. kid, and that just got me hooked. I had to know more. I know that's a, a crazy way to start something, This, uh, but, but I had no expectations. I was just literally going to do like 50 episodes. Don't ask me how. Tell the story. Get off and move on with my life, and it right. has somehow become my life. Right. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, so there wasn't too much. Yeah. You're a full time podcaster now, right? Full, full, full time, uh, full time for four years now. Uh, I, I, it's one of those things where you don't ask too many questions, and it doesn't fall apart. So it just <laughs> kind of happened. It was not a part of the master plan. There's not a lot of thinking going on up here, um, and it just kind of all came together. And I'm very, very thankful. Well, I think it came together very well, I must say. Um, and I, I go back to uh, some of your episodes um, repeatedly for uh, information or perspective on my upcoming episodes. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm going to thank you for that. I, I did enjoy your uh, uh, detailed coverage of Stalin, uh, yeah. of his life, uh, the ba- our, our favorite bank robber. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course. Yeah, he was good at it. Yeah. But uh, so your podcast, though, is, so it's been on for 11 years. Is that right? Yeah. 11, 12. Who, who knows? It's all a wonderful blur at this point. Okay. And you've covered, I mean, I think in the first 
uh, few years, you covered pretty much the whole of World War II. And I understand, I, I can see now that you're kind of going back and going into depth on um, uh, things that you went over, like the Malta um, right. and uh, North Africa, Tobruk are some of the more recent uh, episodes mm-hmm. I've listened to. Uh, but from your point of view and with the depth of knowledge that you've delved over the last uh, 12 years or so, uh, what is the significance of the Eastern Front in relation to the other theaters of operation, such as the West or the Pacific? Right. Oh, that's easy. That's okay. I've got my dog, Finn. He'll be joining us soon, I'm sure. Don't worry about it. Um, basically, and I don't think it was understood at the time, was that the war in Europe was going to be won on the Eastern front. Again, I don't think that was really uh, the take that everybody had at the time, but either Stalin was going to be pushed out of the war. So Germany could focus its resources on the remaining allies or uh, Stalin was going to stay in and watch the Wehrmacht get bogged down, which is exactly what happened. I mean, if you look at it, it's, and we'll go into this probably a little later. It's just too much, too much room, too many distances, the lack of roads, the lack of uh, rail lines, everything. Um, but basically, the war in Europe was going to be won in the East. I don't think anybody thought that at the time. They actually thought that Stalin would be kicked out in about six weeks. But that is going to determine the future of this conflict in Europe. Yeah, that was the uh, the six-week uh, window was kind of the yeah. or horizon was the German plan anyway. Right? Exactly. They, originally, it was uh, by August 1st, we'll be in Moscow. and the, They had a timetable. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the communist government will collapse. Yes, um, exactly. Now, though, you you get that, and and I I get that. But do you think mm-hmm. that it, generally here in the West, in yeah. North America and Western Europe, we have a good understanding or appreciation of the Eastern Front war, the Ooh. the conflict in Russia, the Baltics, Ukraine, Poland? Yeah. Uh, to be honest, it could be better, and it's getting better. But as you know, um, <clears throat> right after World War II politics conspires mm-hmm. to make soviet russia our enemy they close their borders they close their doors not even the cia knows what's going on in stalin's empire so probably what the last 20 or 30 years some really good books have started coming out about the war in the east and so our knowledge is increasing but uh, and, and again as you as you know this um 80 i think it's between 80 and 85 percent of German casualties were on the Eastern yes. Front. So this is where the war is at. This is where it's going to be determined. But again, um, you have the average American, you have the average Brit going, yeah, you know what? We kind of won the war. Yeah, yes. there were other people, but we won the war. No, the war was won on the Eastern Front. Um, and that's just reality. You don't have yeah. to like it, but it is the truth. Yeah. Um, what do you think, though, is the biggest misconception we have about the war in Eastern Europe? Right. Now, I, I should have prefaced this because yeah. you mentioned Hogan's Heroes. And yeah. I think that's the first place that I can remember hearing about the Eastern Front, or as they called it, the Russian Front. Right. What I remember most of all from, from that was there was a threat. There was an on on uh, running threat on the show whenever a German... Uh, soldier or officer misbehaved. So the uh, the the more superior officer would go. I could always send you to the Eastern Front, and yeah. the look of terror yeah. on their face because they they heard rumors. They knew what was going. On. I mean, entire divisions were being gobbled up, yeah. battalions, regiments, that kind of thing. Um, but I to answer your question, I think the idea that Hitler really thought he could win in the East. Not only is that if you forgive me, laughable, but the reasons behind it 
are equally um, obnoxious or, or silly. He had, a, to Hitler's thinking, he had a superior form of government. It mm-hmm. would produce superior fighting troops. And of course, he needed oil, but that, that's a whole side thing. But um, so he really thought he could win. And if you think about it, all of the victories he had up to this point, why not would yeah. he think that he could, especially in six to eight weeks, will just drive the 1,300 miles to Moscow, knock it down, Stalin will give, give up, everything will be fine. No, that that's just not the way it works. Um, but the other part of it is, even though Stalin made a ton of mistakes the first mm-hmm. eight months of the war, getting probably close to a million, maybe a little bit more of his men lost, trapped, killed, starved, whatever, uh, he's not going to give up. And he's got incredible resources to draw on. It just takes time. So, again, the Nazis are going, look, everything's going according to plan yeah. for the first six months. Then General Winter comes in. And things start to change, but just that he could that he could win. Uh, the the Russian people deserve so much credit for what they did mm-hmm. uh, and what they were able to survive. Um, but basically, yeah, we still have a long way to go um, until we really appreciate the war. The Eastern Front. Last thing, and most people don't think about this: the lend lease. Uh, program that America put out and and Britain participated in, obviously. Um, That didn't really start to help the Russians until late 42, early 43. The first year, whatever, was on their own. And listeners, yes, I'm going to be doing a a full episode on the Lend-Lease program. But as... you know, as as we know now know in the news, we don't have to get political. But when you're fighting for your own country, you tend to fight a lot harder than yes. if you're trying to take someone else's territory. As you may know, and as um, um, most of my listeners uh, know, mm-hmm. what part of what led me to the, this podcast was the experiences of my father-in-law Maurice Burry, uh, who right. fought in the Red Army, and the uh, American supplies were very important. And that was one of the things he told me too. Is that the begin first. Uh, six months of the war, like they had no supplies and, you know, they, they ate scraps and what they could find and uh, their boots wore out. But then when they, when the American and British supplies came in, it changed everything. And they had American, you know, American food and they really liked spam. That was their favorite. (laughs) Who does it? Who does it? Yeah. Eat it every day. Yeah. Yeah. No, but if I could real quick, um, I just had a thought, but it's, it's got no, but just uh, Lend-Lease was important, but it was also an important gesture. It was important as a gesture. If right. you've read anything about Stalin, first of all, a lot of the things you think about Stalin are going to be stripped away. But second of all, you know that he was a realist, um, yeah. shaking his hand, signing a piece of paper, slapping him on the back meant nothing to Stalin. As soon as those goods show up in uh, northern Russia, yeah. uh, he, he's going to be like, Okay, I get it now. We're partners because until that moment, it's all just talk, yeah. and talk doesn't change the battlefield. That's right. No, no. power flows from the barrel of the gun. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, one uh, recurrent theme I found in researching Eastern Front is how intertwined the operations in the East are with other things going on, thousands of kilometers away. Right. Yeah. Uh, one example that. Uh, uh, I think a really good example is that Molotov and Ribbentrop signed their their agreement that divides Eastern Europe between them right. days after uh, signing the armistice with Japan, after mm-hmm. the USSR signed the, the armistice with, uh, to end the war in the East, you know, after the Battle of Kalkin Gaul. Yeah. Um, 
or you know another thing maybe more immediate is that uh, fighting in north africa and in crete in the mediterranean changed dramatically because the luftwaffe sent so many units to the eastern front it, it, exactly yeah um so do you find it challenging to remember what else is going on like when you're doing malta you know and, right. and stuff in malta took that was a crucial and a, sort of a turning point right 42 yes. 41 42 43 yeah and a lot of stuff elsewhere is happening yeah so do you, how do you keep track of of those uh, those intersections. Right. I'm glad you asked that question because the short answer is I don't. Um, until until you, because uh, you know you sent me some, I, hey, let maybe talk about this. Let's talk about that. When you sent that, I had to be honest with myself and look in the mirror. I, I don't do that enough. And that's mm. something I want to work on. But, but in my defense, your honor, um, <laughs> when I'm zoomed in on the very tank that Rommel's writing in and he's mm -hmm. getting messages and he's direct. Cause right now I'm in June 12th, June 14th, 1942 when uh, right before Monty shows up and before the first battle of El Alamein. So, so when you get that focused mm -hmm. and that's kind of why I went back, I did these broad strokes and I'm like, no, 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 no. That if I was listening to this, I would be like, dear Ray, that's not good enough. Give me more detail. You know, that mm. kind of stuff. So I went yeah. back and I just, I'm, I'm literally going day by day. Right. Um, but so you, you get lost sometimes and, and you don't think to zoom out, but you're absolutely right. I mean, Malta was either, having it a little easier or they were absolutely suffering depending on how many German bombers and fighters yeah. were uh, based in Sicily when they would go back and forth, you know, to the Eastern front. And so right. you're absolutely right. When you're a leader, you've got X amount of resources, you've got X amount of time and you've got to prioritize and do the best you can. That's, that's all warfare is, is yeah. having good priorities. Um, and so I, I think because of your very question, from now on, when I end an episode, I might go, oh, and by the way, this is going on at this time, the same time, this is going on over here, and this is going on yeah. in London, this is going on in America. So if anything, you've improved my game. Thank you uh -huh. very much for that. But no, you do get so zoomed in, wow. you forget yeah. what's out there. And, and that's kind of the the generals um, in the general staff and the generals in the field yeah. their challenge right because they they're got to deal with the resources that they can deploy yes and uh so if you're at headquarters if you're in berlin or you're in washington or you're in london you're saying okay we're going to send this ship uh over to uh, over here and this unit over there um right. and it, that's why like, i think it was you just mentioned that um they got on uh, a whole you know when the hurricanes arrived in malta mm -hmm. right that was such a, a significant uh, move because yes. they were also fighting the Battle of Britain at the yeah. same time. Yes. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No. And and or you know when a when an aircraft carrier gets sunk in the Mediterranean, how that impacts the war. You know uh, the uh, yeah the war or the uh, the operations in the Atlantic or the Pacific. Right. That's one of the things that it took me probably the longest. This is going to sound amateurish but that's that's one of the things that took me the longest to wrap my head around great britain is not the united states it's not soviet russia it's not as big it doesn't have as many people it doesn't have as much land and it doesn't have as much resources but there are still are there still were a lot of factories in the uk just pumping out planes pumping out guns tanks or whatever but because it's a world war 
Um, yeah, you're going to have to uh, set priorities. You can literally not build enough tanks fast enough to to yeah. satisfy all the various commanders. I do, I do want to add on to something you just said. <clears throat> um, because you have to have priorities, that is just another, to me, feather in the cap of General George Marshall, who was just very good at his job. He had no ego. He constantly looked at things. And it's not like, do I like it or do I not? It's, is it effective? Does it add yeah. to the overall firepower you know and he was just utterly brilliant and of course as as you know america decided very early on in the war that it would be europe first it would be you know mm -hmm. germany first or whatever and so when you have those very tough decisions made it really helps you down the line but you're right when it, when you get to the very end of the supply line decisions have to be made it's not always going to be perfect and the secret of life as in war is doing the best you have with what you have left right right That's all you yeah can do. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, now, just to delve or bring it back mm -hmm. to my my subject, which is the Eastern Front. So, when you were uh, researching your episode on Barbarossa, mm -hmm. uh, I think there was three or four episodes on Barbarossa, and or the series you did on the rise of Stalin. What what right. is the biggest surprise that you discovered in your research? So, if you've if you've ever read anything about Stalin, and this is very uh, uh, Trey Gauche to say, even in this day and age, because Stalin, rightly so, has been labeled as a monster. But if you read anything about Stalin, you get the fact that he was, he did care about Russia. He did want to take it from the czars. He really thought that people were being treated uh, poorly, even himself. Uh, he's from Georgia. You know, it's just mm. one of those throwaway states as far as Moscow is concerned. And no, he he is a narcissistic sociopath. He cannot, does not care about other people's sufferings or feelings. I get all that. But he did work hard at his job. Yes, he was ruthless mm -hmm. to get to power. But once he comes to power, he does really work hard. He, he has incredible hours. He's up all, all night, just like, like Churchill was. Um, now, his methods before the war, do does get millions of people killed if you if you know what happens in uh in the ukraine and that area before mm -hmm. the war it's pretty bad and between hitler and stalin they wiped out several million people uh anyway so um stalin doesn't get he, he just gets to label a monster and it stops right there it should be a little more than that he, he certainly does deserve credit for standing firm and like we said a couple of minutes ago how many victories did uh hitler have up until june 22nd 1941 right. so for stalin to go i'm not leaving moscow we're staying here we're putting up a fight tear down every factory literally disassemble every factory here mm -hmm. take it across the ural mountains and reassemble it and start building again this i order i mean guts it takes it, it takes absolute guts to do that yeah. um and he, he doesn't get enough credit for that uh yeah. and the other thing was again to go from berlin to moscow was 1100 miles or 1800 kilometers i just mm -hmm. and there's and as you as you probably already figured this out the roads in russia um during the winter literally the the snow comes and the ground comes up and, and roads get covered literally mm -hmm. covered the roads aren't there Right. Um, and the thing with the railways is that they're the wrong gauge for the Germans. So yeah. it, it, when you start to, when you get away from the romantic, oh, I'm a national socialist and that makes me better than everybody. When you get down to the nuts and the bolts and the details of the fighting, none of it looks good for Germany. And so you still have to go, this is the arrogance of Hitler that lost him, his empire. Right. Yes, I, I agree. Arrogance 
really struck me as one of the, uh, I think, the main driving factors in this whole campaign. And that leads me to the next question. But before we get to that, let's take a short break. Welcome back to Beyond Barbarossa, episode 17. Scott Burry here with Ray Harris of the History of World War II podcast. And we're talking about, what else? The Eastern Front of World War II. So before the break, Ray described some of the more surprising facets of World War II uh, that he discovered when researching his episodes about the Eastern Front. So that leads me nicely, as I said, into my next question. In, in hindsight, we can say, yeah, this invasion of the USSR was insane. Right. It, would, it couldn't work. We can say that in hindsight. What, in your opinion, yeah. was it ever possible for the Germans to succeed? I, I have been playing this in my head for the last five, seven years. And I would love to have someone say the words, yes, and here's why. I just can't see it. I mean, um, the first winter alone, 41, 42, Hitler refuses to send appropriate winter clothing. And he has like 100,000 cases of frostbite in, in yeah. the men. And that's just the first winter. Um, I, I just don't see how it's happening. You could have given Hitler a thousand more trucks, 10, 10 men per truck. You know, you've got 10,000 men that's getting closer to the front faster without wearing themselves out. That's not enough. Maybe you give them 10,000 trucks. The men get to Moscow faster without being tired, but they're still going to be beaten away by the hordes of, even though they're incompletely incompetent Soviet armies. Mm. Uh, and, and as you know, eventually Stalin brings over his professionals from, from closer to Japan because he can. But I just don't see how he wins as long as Stalin stays in the war. Mm-hmm. As long as Stalin's still directing everything, and he does, and everybody is afraid to death of Stalin, and they should be. But as long as he's pushing the men, telling them what to do, they're shooting deserters, they're not going to lose. And in fact, Stalin doesn't even have to win. All he has to do is not lose and let time and the weather take care, and the other allies, obviously, take mm-hmm. care of the rest. And it's not until Stalingrad that when the, after Stalingrad, that the Soviets can go on the offensive. So, as long as Stalin stays in the fight, I I can't picture him not winning. Mm, okay, it's just my two cents. Okay, um, yeah. Now, kind of leads in. Uh, a lot of people are conscious now of of uh, Russia and Ukraine mm-hmm. because of yeah. the conflict going on there. Right. And I'm just going to ask you: um, Do you see any parallels in the in the uh, developments in the in what has happened between 1941 and 2022 there's a question fraught with uh landmines um <laughs> um to be honest for me <laughs> thanks thanks uh, i'm glad this is uh being recorded um to me honestly they're apples and oranges um you have to get very specific Hitler mm-hmm. wanted Stalin and Russia wiped out. He wanted another kind of general government like he had in Poland. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nazis wanted the Slavs to be in perpetual servitude. 
Hitler literally wanted the lands around Moscow flooded to make a pleasure lake. They were yeah. going to move a whole bunch of Germans uh, there to, to take up the land, you know, the breadbasket, whatever, of uh, Europe. And so Hitler had a specific thing of, of it was racial and it was like, let's wipe these people out. Mm-hmm. And the Russian people, to to the uh, betterment of the world, rose to the occasion and fought love like ferocious tigers against the Nazis. And and they did incredible things. What's going on today is completely different, but yet there are politics involved. Putin, very wisely, does not want NATO or the UN bordering his country. I mean, the NATO was literally constructed to deal with Soviet Russia, to get rid of it, to limit it. So, of course, he's not going to want it around. Um, Where the comparisons come in is the quality of the Russian fighting troops. And you've seen the news. Um, It's not going well for them. Mm -hmm. And again, people who are defending their homelands will go to incredible lengths. They will Find, um, reserves of strength and fortitude that they never thought they had. If you're just being ordered to go over there and kill that person and take their land and it means nothing to you, you're only going to be so effective. And mm-hmm. I think that's what we're finding out today. Motivation. Uh, what, what's that old saying in the gym? Uh, you can't stop someone who won't stop. Um, ah. And so the Russians back then wouldn't stop. The uh, the people, the Ukrainians won't stop now. And so it's going to be a probably be a very different turnout just because the will to win is so Mm -hmm. much stronger on one side yeah okay well yeah thanks for that that's uh Mm -hmm. uh uh a take on it um i hadn't thought of myself um i i see some other parallels uh for example you know uh but sort of reversed uh where where russia is the taking the role of uh, Germany in 1941, mm-hmm. right. um, and then we see logistical problems that were unanticipated, and, oh, and yes. the, the timing is not coming. I mean, it was supposed to be a two-week war, right? Right. So, right. Uh, but uh, yeah, those are probably facile comparisons. Um, yeah, that's a good yeah. point. You made you made very good points there, and it's like, and we're going to watch it play out, and mm. then later on, you know, 50 years from now, someone's going to be able to say what we're saying now about world war ii is like oh it should have been so obvious that's yeah. not the way war works <laughs> no it's only obvious after you know after, after it's like, real <laughs> so, i'm brilliant after reading a history book yeah yeah don't ask me to lead a war no our battle no <laughs> you don't want that Trust yeah. me. now um my next question is um yeah. do you think there are lessons uh from world war ii uh and you've done you've covered the whole war from beginning to end um and um, and digging deep into the minute, are there yeah. lessons from there that we've forgotten today in twenty? Yeah. So eighty years on, I I have the habit of taking almost any historical event and applying it, not applying it, um, using it to try to make my life better. The average person, not mm. not the <clears throat> excuse me, not the soldier, not the general, whatever. But yes, um, there are plenty of lessons uh, that come from this you know, literally worldwide conflict in no particular order. Um, Success often comes slow, but it's quick in the end. Uh, Mm. Delayed gratification is one of the most important virtues in war, business or life. Um, And the the most important one is that war is always hell. It's there's always going to be collateral damage. There's always going Mm -hmm. to be wasted resources that's as low as a society can go when you literally gear up for war and you try to wipe out another group of people but the 
the amount of money that's spent on training someone, making materials, shipping them over, feeding them, you know, the logistics, um, all that money could be so much more efficiently spent taking care of the people of your country. But men with testosterone make the rules half the time when it comes to war. So there's nothing I can do about that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, plans never, ever. Uh, what's what's that, what's that phrase? Oh, plans never survive the initial contact with the enemy. I right. got that from General George Marshall. Or as I like to say, you make a plan, you implement the plan, the plan falls apart. You make a new plan, right. rinse and repeat. Um the best that you can do is have your adversary reacting to you so they can't make their own plans. And you use that to lead them into a trap. Uh, mm. Another lesson is logistics. No one gets excited when the logistics officer walks by. Logistics are not sexy, but they are vital to conflict, combat, and to victory. And uh, of course, another thing you learn from war is you know, how you spend your days is how you mm. spend your life. If you're Hitler and you're thinking about conquest and revenge and all that stuff, it's going to eat him up and, and you become a monster. So mm. watch watch your daily thoughts, uh, everything. Uh, good leadership is vital. There's a there's a Polish saying. Um, if you want to if you want to see someone's true character, put them in charge. Leadership ah. leadership um, uh, intensifies who you are. If you're a good person, you're going to be a great person. If you're a bad person, you're going to be a really bad person. So leadership is one of those things. And, and last one, again, no particular order, but the last one I could think of is freedom is never free. There will always mm. be bad apples among us. They have to be checked, preferably early rather than late, because if you wait late, it always costs so much more to fix the problem. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. That's uh, mm-hmm. that, th- those are great lessons. Those are um, my rayisms from World War Two. Yeah. Rayisms. <laughs> that, that that should be your next project. Are you write, there write we go. the <laughs> book of rayisms. The book of Ray. Oh, I'm going to be rich. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Okay. Well, I think that's uh that leads me to my my last question for you mm-hmm. is um yeah. where is the history of World War Two podcast going next? Um, believe it or not, there is method to my madness. Uh, I know this one guy, Tom, who's like, you go all, you jump all over the place. You don't finish anything. And I'm like, well, it's not like I can stick with Britain and go all the way through the war and then go back to America and go, all, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Uh, no. So as, as I said, I'm currently in North Africa, uh, mid June, 1942, mm-hmm. Rommel is devastating the british eighth army it's just embarrassing mm-hmm. uh, but that's about to change anyways um so once i get up to um because the tabork is about to fall once i get up to the first battle of el alamein mm-hmm. i'm going to stop and uh, you mentioned this a little earlier i'm going to cover operation pedestal and for those listening why isn't someone making a movie out of this right now drop air everything that you're doing green screen the heck out of it because it's a convoy there are so many battles there are so many attacks there's so many uh lives that are lost but there's two uh, i think they're americans but there's two guys are on the ship who were anyway it's an incredible story i can't wait to get to it but you need to drop everything you're doing and make this into a movie and hire us too as your as your uh advisors but anyway no so i'm, I'm gonna go to uh so i gotta finish off i gotta get yes, netflix are you listening yes please netflix chop chop and then cover Operation uh, Pedestal, stop with Mediterranean because I'll have brought it up to speed. And then I'm going to join you. I'm going to pick back up in February of 1942 and, and go on with Operation Barbarossa. 
and um, and spend a lot of time there. A lot of listeners have made it clear to me that that's what they want to know. That's what they mm. want to hear about. And so you and I were talking earlier uh, about, you know, the the perceived knowledge of what happened in the East versus what really happened. So yeah. between you, me and say, I don't know, 30,000 books, hopefully we can give everybody uh, a year uh, what they want and, and, and feed that information because the more you know is better and we need yeah. to really know what happened and not just the the patriotic slogans or the the uh conventional mm. wisdom of, of right. what happened on the eastern front right right okay well that sounds that sounds great and i'm i'm going to be glued to my i'm my earbuds uh every every two weeks uh, it drives my wife it. crazy uh, <laughs> you've always yeah. got those things in your ears but yes. uh but i'm uh, right there with you yeah yeah <laughs> Okay. Well, Ray, uh, thanks very much uh, for for sharing your your time with me. Uh, valuable time. I know uh, how busy you are, and I because I know how much time it takes to do all this research <laughs> and then yes. edit edit these these podcasts. Um, so thank you again. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm going to be listening for the next uh, next episodes. Well. And um, now I, I, I guess it doesn't make sense for me to ask when the next episode comes out, because it'll be a few weeks between recording and, and publishing right. this episode, but it'll be out there and I'll be sure to keep you in the loop as to uh, when that actually happens. Great. That'd uh, be great. So uh, that's the Ray Harris of the history of world war II podcast available on all your favorite podcasting apps. All right. Okay. Thanks very much, Ray. See you later. Thank you, sir. All right. And listeners, as I said, the history of World War II podcast is more than worth your while. I really recommend adding it to your regular podcast feed. It's available on all the podcasting apps from Apple Podcasts to Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and so on. So have a listen. You will also find links to Ray's podcast uh, in the show notes and on the website beyondbarbarossa.com. In the next episode, in two weeks' time, we'll be returning to the chronological description of the progress of the war in the East with um, the Soviet winter counterattack. The Soviets strike back hard. Until then, thank you for joining us on Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world that focuses on the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For links to Ray's podcast and all sorts of other information, please visit the show notes or the website beyondbarbarossa.ca, as I mentioned. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Just click on the podcast button in the banner. Also, thanks to all who have supported the podcast through Patreon or the Podbean app. Your financial support goes to better audio equipment, research, and support for charities that help Ukrainian refugees, and also maybe to getting this pesky dog out of the Redbeard studio long enough for me to record these episodes. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. I want to know. You can reach me by email at contact at writtenword.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page or through email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. 
Until next time, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraina. <laughs>